Welcome to the Grant Writing Simplified Podcast. Here you'll learn how to make a big impact as a grant writer. I'm Teresa Huff, former special ed teacher turned grant writer and nonprofit strategist. My why is to help nonprofits fulfill their why. I'm here to mentor grant writers like you who are ready for a fulfilling, flexible career while leveraging your skills, growing your earning potential, and making a meaningful difference in the world. Through my podcast, coaching, and training programs, I'll teach you the strategies I've used to develop millions in sustainable nonprofit funding. Together, we can create a ripple effect to change the world. Let's do this. People often ask me where to find grants, so I tell them about Instrumental. Instrumental makes my grant searching process go so much faster. The system has so many features and data right there, and they'll even walk you through setting it up to help you get the most out of the software. Instrumental brings all your grant prospecting, tracking, and the ongoing project management under one roof. In fact, I've partnered with Instrumental to give you a free two-week trial and $50 off your first month. Go to TeresaHuff.com slash instrumental, that's instrument with an L, and start your free trial, and you can use the code GWSPOD. Give it a try, and let me know how you like it. Hey friends, welcome back. The last couple weeks, we have been talking about the importance of clarity in our work, because if we are unclear, it's really hard to know how to move forward and how to gain momentum, and it's also hard to communicate our work to others. If we want results with our grant writing, with our nonprofit work, with getting support, then we must get clear. In episode 95, I talked about the importance of clarity and some questions to help you gain that. Then last week, you can catch a strategy call where I talked through some questions and really helping someone dig into her nonprofit work and how she can get clarity to start moving forward this summer and take small steps toward her big vision. Today, we are continuing with the same idea of getting clarity, but in a little different context. You have heard me mention today's guest several times on the show, and I've often recommended his book, Master of One. I am honored to talk with Jordan Rayner, who is an author, entrepreneur, and a podcaster. He is passionate about the idea that our work matters for eternity, and he's on a journey to help others discover how they can best serve with purpose. Jordan shares so much wisdom for doing our work with excellence, setting clear goals, and growing a team well. He shares a wealth of experiences in the interview, but he doesn't mention that he was selected twice as a Google Fellow, and he served for a while in the White House. I think you'll find this interview inspiring and interesting, and maybe a little challenging to keep pursuing your path to mastery. Jordan, I'm so excited to have you. I've been looking forward to this. Tell us a random fact about yourself. A random fact about myself. Well, first of all, Teresa, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Random fact. Yeah, I'm a sixth generation Tampa native. That's a lame random fact, but it's a rare one, right? Like most people in Florida and especially the Tampa Bay area are, are transplants, but my family's got really deep roots here. And, you know, it's interesting as I get older, older, I'm 35, but I'm appreciating the power of place in a different way. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, and the, 
the benefits of having those deep roots. I did not appreciate that at all in my 20s. Definitely not <laughs> in my teenage years, but I'm starting to in my 30s. Uh, I love that. It probably felt confining when you were younger, but now yeah. it feels more stable. Stable, it's, you know, when everything else in the world is changing, like place can be constant. I don't know, it's been like a really beautiful thing over these last few years. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And you can kind of see the other transplants come and go. Yeah. But yet you can remain constant and see totally. the changes over time in one place. Yeah, yeah it's pretty cool. Uh-huh. We would go to the same restaurants for, you know, 20 years. <laughs> like, that's cool. Yeah. And you know it's, the owner by their first name. Exactly. Right. It's great. Awesome. Love yeah. that. And it's good to know that there are still places like that in the world that have that small community yeah. feel. Yeah. It's, I mean, Tampa's a huge city, but yeah. in pockets, it does have that great community, uh, community vibe. Nice. Tampa's a world-class city. World, if you, I tell people all the time, if you haven't been to Tampa the last 10 years, you've never been to Tampa, Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really in particular the last five years and lots to do, great place to raise a family, build a business. And we, we adore our city. Good to know. Well, I have asked you on here because Master of One has recently become one of my favorite books that I recommend a lot. And I've mentioned it several times on the show in past episodes. So I'd like to just kind of start by having you give us a little background on it. What drew you to write it in the first place and just kind of get us up to speed? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, what drew me to write it was that for a long time, I was the typical jack of all trades, master of none. And as I talk about the book, I don't necessarily have a problem being called a jack of all trades. I think that's the inevitable byproduct of experimenting a lot in your career to find your calling. I do have a big problem being described as a master of none, right? Because I believe that work is service. I don't believe that work is primarily for me. And for my pleasure, maximization in life, I believe work is a vehicle of ministry, of serving other people. And if I believe that, then I should be able to point to at least one thing in my life that I could say, yeah, I'm great at that. I don't think I, don't think I would call myself masterful necessarily at anything, but at least I am pursuing and on the path, I would argue a lifelong path to mastering this thing. And the hypothesis of the book is, So many of us are doing so many different things professionally at the same time. We're making a millimeter of progress in a million different directions that in order to attain that level of excellence that truly serves others, loves our neighbor as ourself, uh, we got to commit to a simpler, saner path. I I would argue this path of, yeah, be a a jack or jill of all trades, but a master of one, right? Have one thing that you're really pointing to and really going deep on in this season of your career. Mm -hmm. Right. And that resonated with me because I was kind of at a crossroads when I read it of like, okay, which direction do I go? I could do all these different things. I want to do all the options. You know, I didn't want to have to narrow down, but I knew that wasn't the right path to really excel. And that didn't feel right either. I knew I'd be spread too thin. It just wasn't the direction that I needed to take my career. And so then starting the podcast, as you know, is very much a type of service. And so it leads to that. And when I work with nonprofits and grant writers, that is a key is to really gain clarity. And sometimes saying no and weeding out is tough. It's hard to let go of all the things, but we have to 
in order to refine and become excellent at a few things. And then we can grow from there. Yeah. There's a writer I, I really love. His name's Kevin DeYoung. I might, I might not get the quote exactly right, but he says, the people in this world who never did anything are the people in this world who never realized they couldn't do everything, right? And I think that's like spot on, right? The, the most effective people I know, the people serving at the highest levels of excellence are also the most focused people I know. And so when I really, I mean, I did not, necessarily set out to write a book about focus, right? It was really a book about excellence. I believe work is service. Ergo, we should care about being masterfully good at it. How do the world's greatest entrepreneurs and coaches and artists or whatever, all these people I profiled in the book, how do they think about this? And it just turns out that they were hyper-focused, right? They understood that they had a core craft. And that was the thing that they were hyper-focused on, leading them to eliminate and say no to a lot of other things that would otherwise be on their professional plates. Mm -hmm. And that can be the hardest part because I'm sure those are good things too. Yeah. It's not like you're saying no to bad things. That's the thing, right? It Mm -hmm. is looking at a bunch of great options and picking the best one, not the right one. I don't believe that there's this mystical, right, single thing uh, for all of us to do in the world. But I do believe you need to choose one thing, commit to one thing in order to be exceptional in your career. It's, it's kind of like marriage, right? Like Hollywood treats your spouse as if there's a Mr. or Mrs. Right in the world for you. And we all know that's not true, right? There are likely hundreds of people in this world who share my values Um, who would have made a great spouse for me. But in order for me to have a fulfilling marriage, I had to choose one and commit to being solely dedicated to that one person for the rest of my life. Now, the analogy breaks down here, right? Because our one thing professionally changes from time to time, unlike marriage, right? But the principle is the same. In order to have a fulfilling career, the path to happiness for ourselves is serving others through the ministry of excellence. And that comes by making choices about what you're really going to get great at in this particular season of life. And I think that piece of it really resonated with me because sometimes you hear, and there are times, this is rightfully so, but people saying, oh, just get the work out there, do it messy, just get Mm -hmm. something out and you can clean it up later. And there are times maybe for that. But the thing that really struck me is I like doing excellent work and I like putting things out that are really good quality. And it just didn't set well with me to put out messy work or to try Mm -hmm. so many things that I couldn't do any of them well. And that's where it was an encouragement to say, okay, look, you need to do this one thing really well and go all in. And that just really hit home because in order to win a high level grant or to do your nonprofit work with excellence and serve well, you have to really focus and do it right. And maybe not right, but with excellence. Yeah, this is, we've been talking about this at the individual level, but this is absolutely true at the organizational level, whether you're a nonprofit my, my, most of my experience professionally has been in, well, all my experience has been in for-profit companies. Uh, before writing full-time, I ran some fairly large tech startups. And when you're talking to investors, they want 
clarity of vision for the organization. What is this organization world-class at, right? What is that one thing that they could really point to that they could really own in the market? Um, And so I'll give you an example from my background. Uh, I serve as the chairman of the board right now of a tech startup I ran for two and a half years as CEO, a venture called Threshold 360. And all we do is capture 360 tours of public locations, not interested in real estate. All we do are hotels, restaurants, shops, and attractions. And when we're at these locations capturing these photos, there's a lot of other data that we could be capturing. A lot of other, we could get street view data like Google does. We could get, uh, I don't know, we can manually adjust lat lawn coordinates, like whatever, verify the restaurant's phone number, but we don't. All we do is focus on the photos. That's it. Because that's blue ocean. Nobody else is doing that in the world right now at the scale in which we are. And so we're laser focused on that. And because of that, we've been able to grow really, really quickly because customers know what we're about. Investors know what we're about. Our team knows what we're about. And everyone's just heading in the same direction. That's interesting that you mentioned that clarity because this week's episode that I just published was on you have to have that clarity because if people are confused, they don't know what you're about, they don't know, understand your services, they're not going to support you. So it really comes down to that first. And then the other things stem from that. Yes, totally. Totally. But you can't get, and that's the hardest part though, right? The hardest part is getting the clarity to make the choice and say, this is the thing I'm going to do. Yes. And being willing to refine and let go of some of those other pieces. Yeah. It is tough. Yeah. Well, along with this, burnout is a huge problem in nonprofit work, and it's really unfortunate, but I see it often, whether it's with grant writers or just nonprofit leaders. So I'd love for you to speak to that. And I know that what you're saying ties in because people are wearing all the hats, trying to do all the things, and sometimes they are good things and necessary things to keep the mission running. So what advice do you have? Because that is not sustainable to continue operating that way. Yeah, it's a good question, right? Because there are seasons in a nonprofit, in a business where you do have to do all the things. Because what's essential in that season is getting to a scale in which you can work yourself out of various roles, right? So in a startup, what matters early on is ramping up revenue so that you can hire a sales director and you can hire a a director of product, whatever. And so your one thing in that period of time uh, is really unclear because you have to be a generalist. You have to be a jack or jill of all trades for a season. And I think that's fine, right? But the aim is not to stay there. It's not to remain the generalist. You're always having your eye on, okay, of these five hats I'm wearing right now, which fits me best, right? And your whole job is working yourself out of those other hats and getting other leaders in place to take on those responsibilities. Uh, It can happen overnight, right? It takes a long time, but that's where you're heading. You're not trying to stay a jack of all trades forever. You're trying to grow the organization to a scale in which uh, you could focus on one core competency and your other leaders could focus on their core competencies. In a sense, it's kind of accepting a season of temporary 100%. imbalance. Yes, that's knowing exactly right. 
better days are ahead. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. And if you do the work right, there always is, right? Like that's, that's been my story throughout my entire career is starting really small with me and one or two people, right? When I, when I took over this company threshold, we had about five full-time employees. Um, And by the time I left two and a half years later, we had 150 full-time employees and contractors, right? Like that's big growth, but it was very motivating to know I'm not going to be doing all these things forever. It's kind of the carrot that's being dangled in front of me. It's like, oh, I'm really motivated to get sales off of my plate. So I'm going to push really hard this quarter so that we have enough capital in order to hire that salesperson. So I don't have to do this forever. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, and you established, you got clear on your core goals for the short-term future and your big vision. Yes. So then you could really laser in and work towards those. That's exactly right. And that clarity has to come first. That's what's essential. I agree, especially with nonprofits, because a lot of times they're trying to seek donations, seek grants and whatever, and they haven't really done that work of getting the core clarity first. And then they're just trying to convey confusion. And that creates a cycle that just doesn't work. Totally. Yeah. And and, and listen, I think what's challenging here is it does take a lot of time to get clear. This is the dirty little secret, right? (laughs) It's a long time to like figure out what you really want to commit to. Or you make a really rash decision and then get a little bit down that path and realize it's not the thing you want to be focused on. You waste a lot of time and energy. The most effective leaders I know spend a lot of time on the front end, exploring, thinking, journaling about what basket they want to put all their eggs in. But once they make that decision, it's crystal clear, it's hyper-focused, and they go all in until the job is done. I'm really glad you pointed that out because I think that is so key to whatever kind of work it is. And that really is critical. It's important to invest that time and acknowledge that that's an important and valuable investment. It's not a waste of time. It's critical to the rest of it being a success. Totally. One of my heroes is a guy by the name of William Wilberforce. Um, Wilberforce was in the British parliament in the late 1700s. And he spent a lot of time in his mid-20s after he got elected to parliament thinking about what do I really want to accomplish here? And he spent an entire year just exploring the question, talking to people, whatever. He didn't make a rash decision. And eventually he said, I'm going to abolish the slave trade throughout the British Empire. And you want to talk about big, hairy, audacious goal. And that's what he committed to for the next, uh, I don't know what it was, 35 years of his career. Uh, and sure enough, well, I think it was two weeks before he died, they did it. They finally passed a bill that abolished slave trade throughout the British Empire. But the lesson I take from it, there's many, but is that he took a year when I'm sure he had a crazy busy schedule. He was in parliament for crying <laughs> out loud, right? Uh, but he took a year to really get clarity, weigh all of his options before he committed to abolishing the slave trade. And once he committed, he never looked back. After loss, after loss, after every year, he would introduce a bill to parliament uh, to abolish the slave trade. He would lose year after year after year. But because he took the time to explore his essential intent, as Greg McEwen says, he was committed to it. And he stayed in the game until he got a win in the game 35 years later. Wow. That's a really powerful example because, I mean, sure, there were plenty of options in front of him, plenty of directions he could have gone. And he could have tried multiple things, but he went all in with the one. Laser focused. 
You mentioned earlier, if you get down a path and realize maybe this isn't right, yeah. how do you tell the difference between, okay, this is right, I'm just feeling discouraged, or I really do need to rethink and redirect? Yeah, yeah. It's a really, it's a really good question. I, in Master One, I talk about the difference between pivoting and persevering, right? Like, how do you know when's the right time? Right. And the very unsatisfying answer is there isn't uh, a, a simple answer. <laughs> this is highly, True. highly personal. That said, I do think most people, by and large, give up too early. Uh, there's a great book by Ryan Holiday called The Obstacle is the Way. Oftentimes, pushing through the obstacle, whatever it is in your nonprofit or business or whatever, is what's going to get you to the other side. And, and, and the fact that there is an obstacle means you're on the right course, right? Mm-hmm. Typically. But yeah, this is a highly personal decision. I talk, a, I talk a little bit more about it. I talk a lot more about it in Master of One, but it takes a lot of prayer, a lot of discernment, and a lot of just like looking at the data, right? Because a lot of times our decisions, our question, is this the right thing for me to be focused on, are highly emotional right? They're actually not rational. It's like, I'm tired. I'm tired of dealing with X, Y, and Z problem. I'm tired of dealing with X, Y, and Z board members, whatever it is. Like I just want out. It's not based on data of what you said you wanted to do and how far along you are on the path. Mm -hmm. So anytime a leader is really struggling with this, with burnout, of trying to give up, of considering pivoting away from the organization, but go back to your goals. What were your goals? How far along are you? And if you're massively off, yeah, maybe it's time to pivot. But if you're just tired, it's probably time to just suck it up and push through. That's a good point because sometimes we don't track the data we need or we don't set yeah. up initially those parameters and those measurements Yes. where then down the road it's like, well, are we really making a difference or not? I guess we need to track something for a grant application. What do we need to put together? Instead of thinking that's through strategically up front, so then you do have those benchmarks to yeah. really pinpoint your progress or lack of progress. Exactly. If you're not setting goals, you have no idea whether or not you're winning or losing. And, and at that point, you're just relying on your gut and your gut's pretty unreliable <laughs> uh, in, the, in these situations where things get highly emotional. Mm-hmm. I know for me, like you said, being really tired, or if it becomes more ambiguous, and then the fear sort of creeps in. Mm-hmm. But if I can really pinpoint a name, okay, I'm afraid this might happen. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of follow that through and realize, yeah. okay, if that did happen, it wouldn't be the end of the world. So yeah. I can kind of put that in a container and set it aside and not let that be the driving force. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah. When I was uh, CEO of this tech startup, I always had a worst case scenario list, like a backup plan list. Like, all right, if this fails, I've got these options. And I wouldn't look at it very frequently, but it was peace of mind just knowing it was there. It allowed me actually to stay more focused on the goals at hand because I knew there was that security. Yes, that's a good idea because then you can go on instead of constantly worrying about, okay, what if this doesn't pull through? What if we don't get the funding? Yes. All the different pieces you can just focus in knowing that, okay, there's a safety net. There's a backup plan. I'm not going to count on that, but it's there. That's exactly right. Well, goal setting is a big part of grant writing, and that's typically something that the funders want to see in the application. So I know also for grant writers who are building a career. So what are your recommendations for setting goals as a nonprofit to be reasonable 
Yeah. And then some practical strategies around that. Yeah, I think it, it depends a lot on what your personality makeup is. I've learned throughout my career that my first draft of goals in a quarter, I need to cut by 50%, right? Like <laughs> I'm just a naturally optimistic leader. So I literally do. Yeah. I take my first draft. I'm like, great, I got to cut this. Um, and that's hard. Huge, it's hard. <laughs> uh, on a practical level, I am a huge fan of objectives and key results, the OKR goal setting framework that was made famous by Google. Uh, and I know a lot of nonprofits who have used this really effectively. My friend Janine Uzel, who ran Wikipedia for a number of years, she introduced OKRs throughout Wikipedia to great effect. And basically what I like about, I talk a lot about this in my book, Redeeming Your Time. But what I like about OKRs is that they do a great job of marrying the aspirational goals with the tactical measurable goals, right? So a set of OKRs, you have an objective. That's the O of OKRs. Uh, an objective would be, um, I'll just pull up one from this quarter for, for me and my team. One of our objectives is to prepare to launch my next book really well. That's aspirational. It's not concrete. It's not measurable. We just know we want to do that. A key result is highly measurable to that end, right? So one of the key results is to have an average open rate of 35% on my weekly devotional email. That's measurable and tactile. So that's what I love about OKRs. It's this aspirational and the measurable. Um, I'm just a huge fan for for-profit, nonprofits, individuals. It's just a great framework. And I talk more about this in my book, Redeeming Your Time. That's great because in a nonprofit, it is important to make sure that you're measuring those as you go and showing over time to have that tangible piece ready, not just for grants, but for your board, for your accountability to funders, all the pieces, it's helpful to have that in place. And then when you are applying for a grant, you've got that track record built. Exactly. Yeah. And, and as with any organization, everything is an expectations game. Everything, right? <laughs> True. Yeah, again, I, I've never written a grant application, but I raise a lot of venture capital, which is a pretty similar process, right? Probably uh, so. And in that, you always want to set the bar lower than you think you can clear. Yes. Always, everything is an expectation game because if you clear it, it's real easy to get another investment. Real. That's a very <laughs> simple conversation. Very hard conversation if you miss your numbers. Ooh, that's true. Yes, that's a good point. And it, it is important to be able to have those small wins built in yeah. along the way. Some yeah. that you know you can achieve, that your team can feel good about, even if you're just measuring the small pieces, but it takes those to get there. Totally. Well said. How do you handle the challenges of trying to build a team and being that in that in-between space? When you're in growth mode, it's tough. You're trying to get the right people in their yeah. places. Uh, super tough. Yeah. I always say if you're doing something that has truly never been done before, right? You, you are really creating a, a type of business that's never been done before. Then you actually, you have no idea what people you need. You have no idea what positions you need. And so if you're in that scenario you care way less about technical competency and way more just about general smarts uh, and aptitude. Most people aren't in that situation. Most people are doing something, executing a playbook that is fairly tried and true, right? Like very few businesses are truly going from zero to one. And so if that's the case, 
you got a playbook to follow. You know what hires number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight generally need to be. Not not exact, but generally. And in those situations, you got to resist the temptation to hire your friends because that's who's easiest to hire. You've got to be obsessed about hiring for profiles and just profiling out candidates really, really carefully, and then hiring against that plan. It's a mistake I see a lot of leaders making. They're hiring whoever they can afford, and I get that, right? But the way to really build world-class organizations is to profile the role and go hire A players for those roles. My my friend, Brett Hagler, runs a phenomenal nonprofit called New Story. Uh, They are 3D printing homes in the developing world and trying to end homelessness by building houses for less than $5,000. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, And Brent's really big on this, right? Like they are obsessed with hiring well. Uh, their, Their mantra is if you can't get a job at Airbnb, you can't get a job here. And I think nonprofits, in my experience, really sacrifice on the quality of talent because they, they don't believe they could really afford top tier talent. It's not true if you have a big, hairy, audacious goal. Part of the reason to set really big goals, realistic, but big and inspiring goals is that they recruit others to your cause. So if you've got a really great mission and a really great vision and, 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 and a compelling vision for what you can accomplish over the next X number of years, you can attract pretty top tier talent Uh, and not pay an arm and a leg for them. You hit on some really good points and some struggles that I see really often. One is what you just mentioned about thinking we have to operate on a shoestring, we have to hire bottom dollar pay, but expect way more work than what is reasonable. It's just kind of an unfortunate mindset that I see too often, as opposed to let's set a goal, let's hire for excellence who really fit and can take this much further than we could on our own. Yeah. And then the other piece that is definitely something you mentioned with hiring the right people. I also see that parallel with trying to find board members for a nonprofit Mm. and finding people who are a good fit Mm. and not just getting your brother, your best friend, your neighbor, because I know a guy that can do it. And instead having the right board members and the right leadership who are there to serve and who really care about the mission. Yeah. Yeah. It's an issue of how convinced are you that people are the key to making your organization thrive? That's it. And I believe the right people decisions make every other problem way easier to solve, (laughs) way easier to solve. And so, I mean, as I think about it as a CEO, it's the thing I obsess over the most is getting the right people. It's probably the time when I was running threshold day to day, it's probably the thing I spent the most time on uh, is just getting the right people on the bus and in the right seats, whether that was investors or mostly team members, because once those decisions are made, everything else becomes simpler. So if you're, whether you're recruiting board members or team members, like don't fall for the fallacy that nonprofits can't afford A plus talent. Listen, A plus talent is desperate for meaning in their work. You can provide it, lean into it, play it up and don't settle for anything else, anything less than A plus players. I really think that translates because the funders and donors are going to see that and it's going to resonate with them. And they're going to see that I know a lot of wealthy people who give a lot of money to nonprofits. I'll tell you what, they don't give a dime to nonprofits that aren't stacked with A plus players. 
And the nonprofits they're donating to, they pay their people a lot, either at market or above market for the rest of the nonprofit space, right? That's who's raising the money. That's good to hear from people who you said you're not working for a nonprofit, but you see them and you're connected with them. Everybody's connected to a nonprofit somehow and we're all affected by them. So that's good feedback for people to hear. Yeah. So what leadership skills do you think are the most important in this type of work? Hiring. (laughs) Like seriously. (laughs) Yeah. Like I, yeah, two things, right. Number one, the ability to discern the essential from the noise. When you're leading any organization, everything looks important. In reality, pretty much nothing is important. So how do you discern what really is? And I don't think you could do that without a lot of solitude, a lot of long walks, a lot of time to just think and get clear. Yeah. And then the other one is hiring. Honestly, like that, those two things made up such a ton of my time when I was running this big organization, because uh, those are the essential things. With the hiring, yeah. how do you set up for success when you get someone in a new position? Yeah, you spend more time than you think you need to with them on the front end. And anytime I had a new hire, the only thing that mattered on my to-do list for those first couple of weeks, not hours or days, was getting the weeds with them, making sure that they were clear on what the objectives and key results were that they were personally owning, making sure they had all the tools they needed, making sure they were fully integrated the team and felt welcomed by the team. Yeah, I mean, that that's critical. Just make it, again, going back to OKRs, making sure they really understand what they own. I give my team members a lot of freedom, but with that comes a lot of responsibility. So yeah, you're free to execute against those goals however you want, so long as they're in line with the organization's core values. But that means that you're going to be held responsible for those goals. Uh, Netflix has written effectively about this in Reed Hastings' book, No Rules, Rules, which I think is maybe the best book out there on hiring and how to cultivate an environment of A players. I like that approach because I think a lot of times people in nonprofits, they're so busy, they're so swamped. They just hire and throw somebody in a position and say, here, here's your work. And they dump a pile of work on them with no training, no introduction, just all the unmeasurable expectations or unspoken expectations. And it's kind of setting people up for failure. So I think if we can shift that narrative into more structure, more support, coming into it, it'll be much more effective in the long run. Yeah, for sure. What would you say has been one of your biggest challenges in your journey to excellence? I'm a very emotional person. And that can be problematic when you're trying to do something really hard. Because going back to the conversation we had a minute ago, you encounter a really big challenge and it's not just a challenge. It's like, oh, this whole thing is a failure, right? Like it's (laughs) super dramatic, super emotional response. Now being highly emotional is also a really great asset. And so for me, I'm always trying to surround myself with people who are very level-headed, right? Who are not emotional. My assistant now is actually a really great example. She's not emotional at all. She's just very even keel. And at first that really annoyed me. I've told her this. Uh, That really annoyed me. It really bothered me. But now I love it. I really appreciate it. Because if she gets excited about something, like I know it's a really big deal. Uh, It's good good to balance me out. 
Uh, that's awesome. I think that's a good example of knowing how we are wired yeah. and balancing out, but also understanding the value. Like you yeah. could just say, oh, it's terrible that I'm emotional, but really it's like anything. It's got its upsides and downsides and totally. you understanding that helps you be able to appreciate, but also yes. navigate those challenges with it. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. And then you can identify your team members. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough one. And boy, this kind of work, you've done lots of entrepreneurship. Nonprofit work is very similar yeah. in the startup oh, yeah. journey. It does take a whole mindset shift. And that really is a challenge sometimes to push through. Yeah, totally. It's why you got to read a lot of good books and <laughs> help wrap your head around the mindset you need to really win in that environment. Right. You've mentioned several today that I'm yeah. going to go back and have to yeah. read myself because I haven't yeah. read some of them. Yeah. Well, and I know you have several now on your list and more to come. So mm-hmm. tell us about those. Yeah. So we've now published three big uh adult books, uh, Redeeming Your Time, which is the most recent one and going to be the bestseller of that bunch by a long shot. It's just really helping people finally overcome their time management challenges because I think it connects all the pieces of that puzzle. I used to recommend a dozen time management books to struggling leaders, which is the last thing a struggling leader wants to hear is 12 books. (laughs) And so I basically took those 12 books I recommended all the time and condensed them into one. uh, And that's Redeeming Your Time. Uh, Master of One, is really going to help you find and focus on like what is the core competency you need to be focused on in your nonprofit, right? Like what is what is the highest leverage use of your time within the organization and how can you focus more on that and less on everything else? Uh, and then my first book was this book called Called to Create, which is really this idea of this idea that before God told us anything about himself in the Judeo-Christian Bible, he told us that he's a God who makes things. And that gives great dignity and value to the work that all of us do in the world, creating things to make this world a better place today. Um, so yeah, those are the three books. And then we just published a, a children's book around that same theme called The Creator in You, which has been sold out since day one. It's been sold out for like seven weeks now, but I, I just got word it's it's going to be back in stock any day now. So oh, thankfully, okay. we're going to be able to start shipping some more copies of that book. Good. I'm glad because that one's awesome. I yeah, It's thanks. beautifully done. I love the graphics, the way it all comes together with the story. Very good. Pretty well, scary. I've read most of those. Called to Create is on my yeah. list. That's the only one I haven't read yet, but yeah. it's soon yeah. to come. That's one of my summer reads one. on yeah. the list. So yeah, the others definitely I recommend just for the practicality and bringing it down to really help focus. Yeah. Awesome. Well, any advice for nonprofit leaders or grant writers wondering, is this the right realm for me to work in? That's a good question. Yeah. Again, I think this is such a highly personal decision. It's really one about calling. Like I think about calling in terms of what are my gifts? Most people start with passions. I I tend to start with gifts. Like what am I good at? How can I serve other people? Uh, But number two is passions, right? I, 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 you can't serve people well, unless you're excited about the work. And the third is, where do I see a unique, the most unique opportunity for those two things to converge in service of others? Not the right opportunity, just the best opportunity to combine those gifts and passions in a single area to serve others uh, as I serve myself. 
I love that of really looking hard at those and taking the time, like you said, just a lot of time to think. And for introverts and thinkers like me, that's important to give ourselves that space and that permission, as opposed to just feeling like we have to be go, go, go all the time and always productive. But thinking is also productive. Yes. And I'm really glad that you acknowledge that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I spent a lot of time just on walks around my neighborhood thinking about what to do. And I think I think that helps me focus on the most essential things. Yeah. And just getting away from your desk space yeah. often is really helpful. Totally. Work through totally. problems and yeah. untangle no those doubt. things. No doubt. As we wrap up, where can people find you online? Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, jordanrainer.com, J-O-R-D-A-N-R-A-Y-N-O-R.com. You can find a lot of free content around the themes that we've talked about. And then of course, links to all the books and other good stuff we got going on. Okay. I'll link to everything in the show notes. And would you share a resource that has been particularly helpful for you in your journey? Yeah. I mean, I'll just share the one I mentioned earlier because I just love this book. It's a book called No Rules Rules written by the CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings. I think it's the best business book I've ever read. And it's radical. Like what they, what Netflix does uh, in terms of hiring and and compensation is radical by most people's standards. Uh, But I think it's right in a lot of ways. I I don't agree with everything in the book, but I agree with a heck of a lot of it. It's one of the, every business book regurgitates other content for the most part. Uh, That book's saying something new. And it's wild. Uh, so go check it out. And I think it'll really change the way you think about building a team and running a great organization. Hmm, good to know. That one's now on my summer list yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. After Call to Create, of course. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. This has been full of wisdom as I knew it would from reading your books. So I appreciate you sharing this with our audience and helping yeah. them be better leaders and more confident in their work. Happy to do it, Teresa. Thanks for having me. I so appreciate Jordan's encouragement and his down-to-earth advice for finding clarity and focusing in on the right things in our work. I hope you'll check out his resources because he has some great things available and he recommended some that I'm going to check out myself. I like to leave you with a challenge question for each episode. Jordan and I talked about several key areas in order to master our one thing well. Which of those do you need to focus on the most right now at this point in your journey? I'd love to hear from you. So shoot me a message or connect on LinkedIn and let's keep the conversation going. If you need support in your journey to excellence as a grant writer, I'd like to invite you to join me on the fast track to grant writer. You can go to teresahuff.com slash VIP and start learning today. All right, friends, have a great week and go change your world.